We're going to turn to God's Word now. Uh, we're continuing our, our series whereby we have been thinking about how the grace of God has been working in, in our lives, what God is doing today. Um, the, the, the topic is having confidence that God by his Spirit is wanting you to be confident in the gospel itself and that God is, is working that deep in, into your life. We're going to get this uh, as maybe as we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, you'll find that on page 1196. Page 1196. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. Let's hear God's word. You, however, knew all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As I was saying, the, the, the theme, the topic that's standing over this is just uh, God giving you confidence, confidence in the teachings of the Bible, Confidence in the scriptures so that the grace of God you know is working in your life and that these truths that are contained in the scriptures are real and life-changing and so that you know this is where uh, the core of your being is. Um, so if there's a clarion call that's in any of it here, it's about this idea, just, just keep on keep on keeping on, uh, holding on, on, on to Jesus Christ. In many ways, it's maybe summed up in verse 14 if we read it together. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. The grace of God, can just working that aspect of being convinced of what the scriptures actually teach. Because Paul here, as he writes to Timothy, is aware that there are so many distractions that are open to Timothy and that he can, he can think that other things are so important and that he wants to attend to those things and deal with these things. But as Paul writes to Timothy, there is really only one thing, one general thing, which is that the power that's in the scriptures and the truths of God, that we become convinced about these things. And that's what Paul is saying to us as well, and that we stay this course. So we need to know what these truths are. Now, the guidance, the, the light that, that we follow, as it were, finding directions nowadays is relatively easy because we've got sat-navs. We just sort of punch those digits in, into our car sat-navs and we just follow them. We end up in the right place and we go where we're supposed to be going. Uh, back in the day, it was not so easy. I'm thinking now about... Uh, 
uh, naval, navigation, uh, shipping, all, all, all of that. And that you will know, of course, that the reason they put lighthouses around the coast is in some ways to protect, to guide, to protect from the point of view, to keep the ships off the coast, but also to guide them around the coast safely so that they can make that journey. And so the image of a lighthouse is a good image for us when we think about the purpose of the Bible, that it's a light that is shining and the light is telling us where we should go and this is what we should do and these are the priorities that we should have and that that's the function of the scriptures in our lives. But sometimes it's not so easy just about following the light. Go back a couple of hundred years ago, there were a group of people who were known around the coast of Cornwall as the Cornish Wreckers. Uh, what their ambition was, was to wreck all the boats that went past. And so they tried purposefully to confuse all the, the boats that were going past. So they were aware that there were lighthouses showing the true light, but these guys then made an alternative light and they had this shining all around the coast to try and confuse these guys so that the sea captains couldn't work out which was the authentic light. So sometimes, you see, it's not enough to follow the light, but you've got to be able to distinguish between the true light and a false light. And so these Cornish wreckers, literally, they just lit these other lights up and then they scurried down in the depth of night, down the side of the coast, and just waited for the inevitable, where the ships crashed into the, into the shore, and they were able to plunder and steal all the stuff that was going past. And that's why it's important for us to be able to be convinced of the truth, and that we know what this authentic light is that God is working in our lives. If I take you back to verse 14 again, where it is saying, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. And he expands that into verses 15 and 16 about how the scriptures are working in your lives. And verse 16, I think, is the most significant of all in understanding what the word of God actually is and how the word of God actually works. I mean, we read verse 16 together. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, literally, when it describes here the scriptures as being God-breathed, the Greek word is theopneustos, which means literally God-breathing out. Now, theologians call this the doctrine of the inspiration, the divine inspiration of scripture. And they call the scriptures inspired. And when they use the word inspired, it's not in the same way that an artist might think a mountain scenery is inspiring. Or an athlete might think that a, an Olympic gold medal is something that would inspire him to work well. But when the scriptures talk about themselves being inspired, it says that there is a distinct character about these words that are imbued with the very character of God and it's recognizable. So when you put your hand in front of your face and you breathe out, literally that is saying how God has breathed out his words. If I was also to read from 1 Peter 
chapter 1 and verse 20. Again, it describes here how the scriptures of God, actually, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, how the scriptures have come about to us. If I read in verse 20, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though they were human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And also later, Paul also writes in, in Thessalonians about how they recognized and they received the word of God. And he says, you received these words not as human words, but you received them as the very words of God. Now, why is all this important? All this is important because we recognize that the Bible, these words, this is God speaking his words to us these words that he has breathed out and that we believe that these words answer stuff. So whatever age you are and whatever the issues that you are going through in life, the trials that you are going through, and even though you're, some of your mates and some of your friends may have a very different outlook and a very different understanding of things, what the writer here wants you to be convinced of is God's view of things because he's saying this is God's breathed out words to you and that what we find when we read the scriptures is this is God's take on things. And if you want to have the answers to the ultimate questions in life, those questions that you will have, you get them from the scriptures. And these are not words like any other words. These are divinely breathed out words. In preparing for this sermon, I'd come across a blog article about a French painter, Paul Gaujean. And it was describing one of his paintings in particular, which is hanging in a museum in Boston. And in this painting, he had written on the top corner three questions, the three fundamental questions of life, which everyone must surely be asking and wanting to know the real deep answers to. The article was suggesting that this was a... This was painted at a very significant point in this guy's life. He had really anticipated this would be his last painting. He was deeply depressed. He was anticipating uh, committing suicide shortly after this. It didn't transpire that, that happened in that way, but the, the painting was, was still left. But these questions are the fundamental questions that anyone, any one of us, anyone in the world will surely be asking. And we're Maybe you'll say, just get on, show me what these questions are. But I believe that these questions will be answered in the Scriptures. This is what God is speaking to us about. So these questions, here they are. And unless you've got a GCSE in French, you probably do not have a clue what those questions are. I did say it was French, didn't I? I'm going to help you and go through each of them in turn. I think these fundamental questions. The first one is, where do we come from? What's the origins of things? 
Where do we come from? Who made everything? I mean, you can look outside and you can see creation and you can, and you can ask yourself all sorts of questions. Is Where did it all come from? Was it a big bang or what's the purpose of, of, of all these things? How could life suddenly have just evolved in the manner in which it did? And that's the really big question of life. That's what drives physicists in their in their trying to understand their understanding of the world and, and all their little particles that they're chasing after and where the, the destiny of the, of the world is heading. It's what drives biology. It's what, it's what drives philosophers to try and work out what life is really about. And that's why when you think even in philosophers, they've got all these, they're really depressive and dull and, uh, de- and depressed people. Um, as Einstein said, the people who know the most are always the most gloomy. So... These are deep, this is a deep question. Where do we really come from? And I think at times we're always a bit on the back foot because we think our understanding of of life from the Bible, uh, we always think it has to be more nuanced than that. It has to be more deep than that. And we think our our friends know better than us and that they seem to have things more organized to us. They have a scientific uh, lookout or they have a very philosophical lookout, which seems so different from the scripture's answer to this. But going back to verse 14 of what our, the passage that we read earlier, says these are the things that we want you to be convinced of and what you have learned from infancy because this is what God and God's understanding of the world is really about. And I want you to know that your friends, whenever they are alone at night and lying on their beds, and whenever their minds are filled with all sorts of questions and all sorts of worries and all sorts of anxieties and all the things flood into their minds, they do not have any better answers to where life has, has originated and where it has come from. But you have an answer that you believe that God, that it begins with God and it ends with God and it began with God wanting to have a relationship with you human beings, and that the whole purpose of the world and what God is doing is that God made the world and that God made the world to have a relationship with you. So you have an understanding that God is in the midst of this and that these are, this is God's outlook and this is what God wants you to be convinced of. So that's the first question. Where do we come from? It all starts with God. That's what we believe. Second question. What are we? People are bound to be thinking that question. Many people say we're just a blob of matter and that we're here for a short period of time and then we die and that's the end of it and there's nothing more to that. Now again, that's the most depressing outlook but that's not what the Bible says and what the Bible wants you to be convinced of is what the Bible actually thinks you are. So what are you from a Bible point of view? Well, I've got three little sub-points for this. And the words are, the Bible thinks that you're fabulous. Now, I don't like that word fabulous. I would have rather had glorious, but I couldn't get three Gs, but I could get three Fs. So, and I'm thinking here about you, the Bible's view of you being glorious. We know we're not perfect. 
But the Bible has a perspective of you that you are imbued with the character of God and that there is something about God's character in you because you are made in the image of God. You have value and you have purpose. And perhaps the best way to think about this is that you are like a glorious ruin. You know, like Dunluce Castle. You go past Dunluce Castle and you have an image of what this castle once was. Okay, there's no doors and there's no windows and there's not half of the walls that it used to be, but still you have an, a hint of what it used to be like. And that's exactly what the Bible says about you. There is enough about what you are right now, that you have value and that you have purpose and that God has something in store for you and that you have this glorious sense of what you were originally when you were originally created, of what you were because you were made in the image of God. So the Bible can say that, yes, you are fabulous and that God is doing something with you. But the Bible also says that you are fallen because there is not a bit, there is not an aspect of your nature that is not affected by sin. And because of that, you can never have a direct line to God. You do not have this telepathy whereby you're able to meet with God because you are a sinner. And by being a sinner means that you cannot even think about God unless God first begins to work in your heart, opens your eyes, because your eyes, the Bible says, are blind until God begins to peel away those layers. And God, by his spirit, moving in your heart so that you begin to reach out to him. So if you wonder why your friends aren't Christians and why they would never, or why it seems that they would never do this, it's because they are blind and they are fallen. So you're fabulous. There is something that God about you that, that is the character of God is there. And yes, you are fallen because you are a sinner. But you're also fragile. And boy, I know that too. Um, and I say this quite often when I'm with a family around a time of a, of a funeral. And one of the Bible readings that I would have is just talking about how Paul describes living in and life is like living in a tent, an earthly tent. It's, it's transient, transient, it's imperfect. So often I would also get people to look at the back of their hands. If you want to see the passage of years, you look at the back of your hand and you will see that you are older and that you are aging. And in this sense is that you are fragile. So even if you're young here right now, and a lot younger than me. And perhaps if you're really young, the only reason that you would ever need to go into Boots the Chemist is to buy perfume or a hot water bottle or some other gift for someone. And you're running through that chemist store and there's aisles of stuff in there that you would never go near. And you might actually wonder, who needs this stuff? I'm going to tell you, no matter what age you are now, a day will come <laughs> when you're going to have a gimme knee and you're going to need to run in there and you're going to ask someone at the back of the counter, I need something to rub onto my knee to take the pain away. 
And the reason for that is that you are fragile. So what are you? The Bible's view of what you are and what the Bible wants you to become convinced of is that, yes, you are fabulous, but that you are fallen and that you are fragile. And my final question is, where are we going? And again, this is what the Bible wants to give you a view on, a perspective on. Something more than that even to be convinced of so that it will hold you through the difficulties and those times when you worry and when you doubt. Where are we going? And again, if I'm going back, what you should be, in verse 14, I'm, I'm centering all my thinking on this. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. I mean, what does come? after this world. What is in store for the future? You're bound to have thought at some point about that. Possibly at a time of bereavement, especially when a family member or a close friend has died and you've been brought face to face with that and you will have asked that question, what lies beyond this world. Where are we going? There's a French novel writer from last century wrote a story entitled The Spectral Hand and it describes something like a seance. Now, please understand, this is complete nonsense. It's a novel, okay? But what he describes is someone putting their hand through a veil and trying to grab hold of one of the spirits as they, as they run past. And if you're able to grab one of these spirits as they run past, then you're able to question that spirit and trying to get truths out of that spirit. Well, you know, in reverse, this is what God has really done because he has gone through that veil that exists between heaven and here. And God went through that in Jesus. And he came into this world in Jesus. And as we've been just reminding ourselves all the way through this service today, we remember what it was that Jesus did, why he lived, why he died. And that was to restore us into a relationship with God so that our sins could be wiped away. There's nothing that we could ever do about that ourselves, but Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the price so that the burden of that could be removed, the barrier that our sin caused between us and God could be removed, so that when we ask the question, where are we going, we have a certainty. Going back to this verse, to be convinced of what you have learned from infancy that you know where you are going because you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I'm praying that you will have that certainty so that you will have that certainty and that you will be able to talk to others, other people who may be unsure about the truth and where truth actually lies. Some people, maybe even you today, may be running away from certain aspects of truth, denying certain aspects of truth because you don't want to face up to it, but that you might, by the grace of God working in your life, become convinced of these things 
so that you know that Jesus is your Savior. So that, yes, you know where you've come from. You know what you are, and you know where you're going, and you have the assurance and the resolute belief that you are standing in Jesus. Now, we're not terribly good at learning catechisms. And the catechism that I'm going to turn to now is one that I doubt if you've ever learned anything from, because it's the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm going to ask you a question. Heidelberg Catechism number one. And where it's going to is reminding us that these truths are our comfort. These truths remind us of what is important. What is important out of all things, life and in death. So the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is what is your only comfort? in life and death. I'm going to get us all to repeat the answer. Ah, don't worry, I have it written out. <laughs> and you'll be glad I had it written out because it's very long, so you'll be glad you don't have to learn it. But what I'm going to get us all to do now is simply to repeat this. And as we repeat this answer, we are reminding ourselves of these truths that are important, that God, by his Spirit, is working into our lives, that we become convinced of these things. We become convinced of the gospel. We become convinced that we are standing in Jesus. So what is our only comfort in life and death? And let's repeat together. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. We stand in the assurance of these truths that are in the gospel. We're going to join together now to sing and to praise God. And we do that in the words of, oh, to see the dawn. And as we sing these words, we are reminding ourselves what Jesus has done for us. And may these truths be worked deep into our hearts and experience.